Hi, I'm Dan Higginson, and welcome to the 28th episode of the Idle Hand Society podcast, where we hope to discuss and learn more about effective creative process. I heard if you climb Synodonia at sunrise and start an ancient ritual dance, he'll appear in a puff of smoke and grant you free wishes. I'm joined today by Paul Bentz. Awooga. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Can what I say that? Hello. <laughs> it's like trademark. I don't, know, I don't know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We're also joined today by documentary photographer Martin Salter. I'm glad oh. to have you with us, Martin. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Not a problem. Carl, he sort of put you on our radar and I'm really, yeah. really glad he did. Well, thank you. You've got a book that at the time of recording this, I think has just come out. I don't it's have my copy out, yet. Yes. Memory Lane. How's, yes, how's that been for you? Like, Okay. Yeah. Memory lane. Uh, it, yeah. Okay. So this is the most unexpected thing that's ever happened to me in my creative life. So in that respect, it's quite, it's kind of, it's interesting because, um, uh, I can, I completely given up with, uh, pursuing photography as my primary kind of activity, either, you know, commercially or personally quite a few years ago. I still, you know, went out, took pictures here and there, a few, few, you know, camera on holiday, that kind of stuff. But ultimately the passionate, um, obsessive, what I call the golden period had, had passed, uh, for, for a whole variety of reasons. Um, and, um, my daughter who's now 22. She said, well, why don't you stick some stuff on Instagram? This was last October. And I said that I've, I've no interest in, you know, getting, going down that rabbit, you know, wormhole, rabbit hole, whatever. She said, just do it and see what happens. And so I did. And, um, uh, yeah, within a few weeks, uh, suddenly there was sort of, there was, you know, very few followers or very little interest, but they, they were, from, the interest was from people who I was interested in as photographers. And, and I connected with Matt Stewart, um, the street photographer, uh, through a sort of shared love of photo books. And I posted one of the pictures, which is in the book, which is of a kind of ice cream van in Snowdonia painted with an Uncle Sam face. And he said, oh, I, I remember who you are. And I said, well, how come? And he said, because in the 90s, I, when I started out as a young photographer, I used to collect the independent magazine, which used to publish a lot of my work. And I remember collecting all of your photo essays, thinking, oh, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And I said, well, that's kind of kind of very kind of you. And um, so we connected online and he said, have you got a book in you? And I said, I've got, I've got multiple books in me, <laughs> like many photographers. But he said, well, let's just start with one and make it as good as we possibly can. So we, we, we did this massive edit of, of the work. Tom Booth Woodger, um, who's worked with a lot of photographers, got, got behind it as well as, the, as got into the sequencing. Matt then took over the sequencing, and it took about four or five months to get the, the final 64 pictures in, in sequence, which for me felt like forever. Um, but at the same time, it's like, I'm so glad that that time was spent on it because instead of a sort of greatest hits of, of, of work that I'd done back at that time, it became a kind of coherent kind of essay or collection yeah. of pictures about something which mattered, not just to me, but maybe to other people. And it, and it's, 
I, I only picked it up last week. I only saw it last week and physically held it, which is here. And it's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> was it emotional? It was very, very strange because um, I had never, I, I kind of, as a younger photographer, you know, it's, it's your dream to have a book. It's like being in a band, you want, you know, want an album, you want to be yeah, signed. Yeah. Uh, and 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 uh, and there it was, and it's like, oh, okay. And then it's like, so how do I really feel about this? And I feel, I feel, I felt very, very excited, uh, but also very privileged that this had actually happened. And I'm, I'm still sort of processing it at the moment because it's put me back in a, a kind of whirlwind of different feelings about uh, photography, um, which you know. And I started shooting again. Sort of, <laughs> it's like, oh, where's this going to go? It doesn't have to go anywhere. I'm 56 years old now. I'm not building a career, you know. I, I, I'm, I'm just in a, in a very strange place. That's the only way I can describe it. Did you, did you know Matt before you started posting on Instagram? No, I knew of his work. Yeah, I'd seen yeah. street photography, and um, no, I think I, I, I was, I saw his posts that he was like in lockdown everyone started getting on social media and i i spent a lot of the time archiving in the first lockdown with no intention of doing anything other than getting the work in order and making it kind of it was it was in the loft basically it was it was some of the necks were deteriorating you know um and um yeah i just got this shared passion with photo books and i i think i posted something um matt was Putting something about Lars Tumbjörk's book Winter, and there's a picture in that book of a of a scarred chest, and it's actually Tumbjörk's chest after he had open heart surgery. And I said, "Oh, just a, as a super photo nerd kind of insight, that's actually Tumbjörk's self portrait." And of course, he then died of a heart attack about two three years later and dropped down in the street. And that book is a very mournful, very melancholic book um a lot of it's to do with tom york's kind of you know health issues and um so you know we kind of started to share sort of nerdy insights (laughs) (laughs) it sounds amazing (laughs) i I wish i could have been part of it (laughs) (laughs) and and uh and i think that was where we we bonded over a sort of shared obsession with um, the history of photography i suppose can I maybe ask a personal question and why you fell why you fell out of love with photography? You kind of uh, danced over it. What what was what was the reason why you kind of thought, oh, I've had enough of this? Uh, shall I tell? Okay, I had reached. Uh, I had been incredibly ambitious as a young man, like super. Amb- you know, I, I'm gonna. You know, let's let's see what I can do with this. And um, so once I decided on something, I I've, I've become very very hyper focused about doing it and when you say uh, a young man how young are we talking i was 20 23 okay. 22 23 i'd done a lot of traveling and i'd come back from traveling and i i'd studied politics and philosophy at university and i i was on the verge of going back to university to study photography i'd got a place at um uh, london polytechnic of central london and i'd I just didn't turn up for the first day. I thought, I can't go back to university. I've done that. I've got to. So I got a little job in a publishing company as their kind of in house photographer, come desktop publishing, you know, just doing just any opportunity to get get my 
foot in the door. But I used to go to loads and loads of talks, you know, photographers, galleries, talks, and all everything, just like hoovering up like a massive sponge of learning at that time. And it's like, um, and then I saw an advert in um, in the Guardian, which was the only way you could get a job in those days. Was the Media Guardian? It was pre-internet, pre any digital world. You literally on a Tuesday went through the Guardian to see what jobs there were. And there was this little advert for an agency called Network Photographers. And I saw that and I thought, oh, my God, if I could get a job there, this was where all my kind of, it was like a kind of British version of Magnum, but much more kind of, um, it was set up as a collective, but in a very, it was very British focused on social issues and documentary. So I thought I have to get that job. So I did lots of research about the agency and, and they've, very fortunately I, I managed to get the job but once I got it I thought oh my god how am I going to do this I had to be their editorial sales person selling all their features that they were making raising money from magazines and I felt, suddenly felt very out of my depth but I kind of stuck with it and I learned so much from those guys I mean, can't you know Barry Lewis and Mike Goldwater Mike Abrams Jenny Matthews you know Mark Power was a photographer there then you know, the list is endless of people who are just either at the peak of their careers or just sort of starting out. Um, Dodd Miller, Paul Lowe, Jonathan Ollie, all these people. That, yeah, yeah. And I was part of that community for a couple of years. But then I realised actually I, I just wanted to be a photographer. So I went travelling again, came back from travelling, had decided I wanted to be Alex Webb, like many young <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Just... Sh- just came back with loads. It's not a bad aspiration. It's not, it's not, but it's ultimately you, you, what I found was that I was able to, to take pictures in a way that, that looked a bit like his pictures, but ultimately (laughs) it was, and then I got offered a job at Magnum as their editorial sales uh, person. And I, I didn't last more than six months there for various reasons. And, And then I went freelance and, uh, when I was 20, 28, and I've been self-employed ever since. So then the kind of my journey as a photographer began in terms of just getting any freelance jobs that I could get just to get money. We we had our first child shortly afterwards. The pressure was on. And I just started pitching ideas around to magazines, which is what I'd been doing for network and magnum but now i was doing it for myself and it was much more difficult and i saw that there was a real interest in british subjects stories about britain and um you know i was very interested in the way that certain british color photographers had focused on their own country and i thought well this alex webb thing ain't going to work in england not on a (laughs) miserable day in december so i switched to color neg uh no flash that was that was because that was, you know, you couldn't do flash because if you did flash, then you were just Martin Parr, you know, and you, I had to find a voice that was mine. So I tended to shoot in quite dull lights. I decided on the Rolleiflex as the square format because it was much quieter. You couldn't make those kind of noisy pictures in the same. I did shoot kind of uh, noisier pictures, but that suddenly became my thing. And I started getting commissioned a lot for that and it was a lot of it was my ideas that I was putting forward and I suddenly went from the kid who wanted to be a photographer to to being the photographer that could walk into a magazine and actually just say I'd like to go and do this and them saying yes 
which was so weird. I can't even tell you. <laughs> How did you find the subjects that were fascinating to you? Because um, uh, when you when you go to someone and pitch something, it needs to be something that you're actually going to enjoy shooting. Yes. So, yes. So what the was classic it? Classic one would be the fifth. Uh, I I discovered it was the fiftieth anniversary of the national park system. So that's an easy hook. Fifth, any anniversary, but it's got to be a big one. It can't be the twenty fourth anniversary. <laughs> so the fiftieth anniversary of the national park system. And I went to the magazine and I said, "Look, I'd like to go to six different national parks and photograph life in the national parks." And they just they gave you in those days. And it's what was called, a, it was kind of an all-in fee. So you literally, because you were shooting film, you shot very little and you were very, very frugal with your accommodation and your travel and all those kind of things because it was like all-in. So whatever yeah, you yeah. got left at the end was how much profit you made. But they would give you maybe three to £5,000 to do it, which, you know, is quite a lot of money. When And um, so the ideas would come from, you know, say Ascot, Go and do Ladies' Day, but don't go into the posh bit. Go into the into the area where there's all kinds of different kind of people. And this was before Ascot became a bit of a sort of shit show for. Sorry, I broke breached your swearing policy. <laughs> no, no, the swearing policy is uh, the more you swear, the better. So okay. <laughs> fucking go for so, it. <laughs> yeah, he uh, going into those scenarios and trying to find a different way of doing it that wasn't exploitative. There's a couple of pictures I took there that I'm not happy with now and would never show again. But in the main, it was quite quiet and quite, um, uh, how can I put it? It was just a different way of looking at things. And the Rolleiflex obviously enabled you to work more quietly and more um, kind of in a more considered way. And, and, and again, it, it just seemed to be, so another one, I was on an assignment for a, for a bar chain and I, I had access behind the bar and I'd never worked as a barman and I suddenly saw all these people just scrabbling for to get served so I went to the magazine I said look I've seen this amazing scene uh, behind these bars can I go to 10 different bars around the country and shoot what the barman sees and I'd seen a picture story by Marianne Mark on singles bars in in New York in the 70s, and she got behind the bar and she'd seen these kind of scenes. And and I, it was unbelievable that that, that was that those scenes that I saw. So I went to all different kinds of bars. I even went on a train and photographed the barman's view on the intercity once. Right. <laughs> you know, as many different bar scenarios as I could find. So, so that. So I'm going to get on to. Then I suddenly got picked up by loads of, by an advertising agent, and they suddenly said, "We can get you in front of loads of different uh, big, uh, you know, Saatchi and Saatchi and all this kind of stuff." And I was on an assignment for what was it? Health Service Journal going up to um, Leeds or something for 120 quid. And my the agent guy said, "What do you mean? You ca you can't do that. You've got to come into Saatchi's tomorrow and pitch. We're doing this pitch for Sony." So I went into this world. In, I went into a room, and there were twelve people sitting around a table. <laughs> and suddenly, I thought, "Oh no, 
this is this is horrendous because I've suffered quite a lot from social anxiety and right. yeah, it's like oh my god, are you kidding? And they then they looked at me and they said, so your concept for this shoot, you're the photographer. What's the concept? And they just basically got a drawing that they've given to me, and and it's like this this is what you will be doing. What is your concept? And I just I just remember saying something like, oh street. just some bullshit word that came out of my mouth and everyone went oh yeah street street started nodding their head (laughs) and i was like it's like you people don't know what you're talking about do you no i don't know what i'm talking about you (laughs) but you can tell that in that situation that those people like they're all i I guess it's a great leveler isn't it when you talk to somebody like that and you're in a position and suddenly this light bulb goes off and you're like oh wait we're all bullshitting like literally nobody in this room knows what they're talking about no, and the, the terrible thing was the art director went on the shoot, right, and they set it all up. It was a kid who'd crashed his father's sports car. It was on the back of a, a lorry, and we were going to create the front part of a crash car, and it was the oh, early right. days of Photoshop, and that would be dropped in. And the art director slept through the whole shoot. <laughs> uh, I'm not kidding you. He slept. Oh, my and God. He, yeah. And... Uh, and it's like, and so anyway, I had five, I had five years of working in that way um, because the magazine world, the, the, the magazines were sort of getting smaller and the assignments were getting smaller and the amount of money that you could be, you know, make through, in advertising was significantly more. And for some reason, a lot of photographers at that time thought that doing advertising meant that you'd made it. Okay. That, that was the, I don't know why. I think it's different now. I think becoming an art photographer uh, is a sort of equivalent or becoming a, I don't know, an influencer probably now is the, is the equivalent. But at that time, it was seen as the kind of um, the high point of your career. And it's not the high point of your career. It's the low point of your career, but you just don't realise it because essentially you are being eaten like from the inside. And, and uh, and it just didn't work out. I just didn't have the right temperament for it. And uh, in the end, my agent uh, let me go via email, which I thought was incredibly cowardly. And I, wow. I will hold that to them now and say that you, 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 and and essentially we moved out of London. Uh, my career at that time then sort of collapsed because I put all my eggs in one basket. Uh, I advertising and um that was it and i just thought okay well that's done now and so now it's time to do something else and and i moved into video and have been running a video production company ever since so that was the Mm. end of photography but it wasn't really because i was secretly doing my own (laughs) stuff it was just a pause right just a pause yeah well i was still shooting but out of just a, a love of being you know photography there was no you know i would still shoot occasional assignments on the back of a video shoot so for hospitals or charities or companies that i was working for but it wasn't the primary focus of the shoot anymore it was um the primary focus of the shoot was uh, was moving and i think that the reality was that youtube was invented in 2006 and then intranets came into companies and so the ability to share moving images became so much easier and it's like well that's where all the budget shifted as well they just suddenly moved into the moving image and 
It's like, well, I never really, I, I, I didn't, I tell you, I didn't really want to go again in the video way. I didn't really want to sort of then chase that to its, you know, the conclusion of being yeah. a big shot director or whatever. I kind of toyed with it inside internally, but I didn't really have it in me anymore to go and pursue that. My family were growing. The needs of the family were getting greater and greater. And it's like, uh, I, I just needed to sort of keep, keep a level head on all of this, which is why this book <laughs> coming right now is, 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 is rather wonderful because it's the thing I love to do and someone saw it and they didn't, it, it's, it's not a collection of ads for, for Nike or whatever. And by the way, if people can make money out of that, go for it, you know, make it wherever you can. And some people absolutely love shooting advertising and I completely, you know, respect to them and they may have a very different temperament to me, but f from my point of view, I just didn't have it in me and, uh, and they found that out. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch a bit of a choose your own adventure at your mind, right? Okay. So I, I've got like two burning questions yes. from from that. And the first is once you're unleashed and you sort of move professionally into this world of video, mm. and you're still doing personal stuff with photo, mm. like mm. what what is that personal stuff at that point? And the second question I've got, mm. and I don't know which one's a better question, is have you ever crossed those two beams? from photo yeah. and and video in terms of doing yeah. something documentary with. yeah i have i have and uh, i yeah so um so i i when i was in my 20s i went to this valley in the himalayas called zanskar which is in northwest india and i sort of was looking for you know the sort of the truth, whatever. <laughs> the <laughs> the truth. It's not in, it's nowhere. It's not in Zanzibar, is it? Yeah, it's not there. It's, it's in me and you and everybody else. But I thought it was somewhere else. So. But anyway, I, I wanted to go back there in 2007 and I needed to kind of kickstart the video sort of side of things. So I discovered these three women in the 50s who'd been the first women to ever travel there with cameras and video, ca uh, with uh, moving cameras, you know, uh, cine film. So I tracked them down and they were all in their 80s. And I said, look, um, I'm going to go back to Zanskar and I'm going to take your film back there and show it to people and make some documentary work, which is very counter to sort of National Geographic or Geo or any of that sort of way that things were traditionally depicting uh, um, these cultures and I'm going to shoot it some some stills on the Rolleiflex or whatever and which is what Carl's currently scanning now this is um, Carl Bailey sorry yeah, I've just realized that we, we didn't actually mention his second yeah, name Carl so Bailey, anybody that's but, interested in looking yeah we'll we'll, we'll link him in the uh, yeah, show Carl notes. Bailey's been, been very helpful in sort of digging around and saying what else you got you know and I've, I've so the Zanskar work was and, and I made a, a film incorporating the women's journey in the 50s with with the life in the valley at that time which was very much at the cusp of social change huge social change and and that kind of got some traction in a few little sort of sort of um the telegraph did a big thing on the women and in radio 4 did something but it was all about the women and the story it wasn't it wasn't really about me and that was quite that kind of felt quite nice and then um 
And then I went back to that region and shot a feature film with local actors, which for like a couple of grand with new, the new technology at that time was that you could, you could shoot video, but it looked like film because the gamma curves in the cameras, uh, it, it suddenly video didn't look like video. It looked like film. And it's like, Oh my God, this is great. So we went and shot a little sort of spontaneous, uh, two week feature film called Wolf, uh, which is still on the internet now. And, uh, and that sort of kickstarted the video side of things, but that was very personal to me. So it was, it, it felt like an extension of some of the work that I've been doing. Um, but then I realized about film and video is you need a lot of people. You need a big crew. You need lots of highly skilled technicians to make something great. And, and there's only so much you can do on a very low budget. I mean, you can do stuff, but there's only so much you can do. And Is so, there like one or two things that you wish you could go back now and tell yourself just before you started that project? Uh, yeah, I would say, um, I would say, uh, what would I say? I'd say go and do it because ultimately it, 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 it sort of taught me the skills of how to edit and how to, how to put uh, moving images together. And, and so it, it did kickstart, but I would say I should have perhaps taken the work more seriously on one level, but this is the difficulty that I have. If you take yourself too seriously, you're in serious, you're in trouble. Yeah. And if you take the work seriously, you don't tend to think about yourself so much within it. The work is the work and that that then does its magic. If you then, if you take yourself too seriously, problems emerge. And I think what happened was for me is that there was a conflict, which was like, should I take the work seriously or should I just try and just get the next, um, you know, the next assignment just to, to pay the bills and at that point you know my children were all at school you know at going to different private walking my little one to nursery and my mm -hmm. my eldest to the secondary school nearby my daughter so life just took over to be honest and there is a moment in your adult life where you put yourself on hold and if you don't something has to give and I, I'm very glad I would I would advise myself to go with the sacrifice that's necessary at that time in your life to put your family first and not worry about it because then there may well be a time in the future, i.e. now that they're all grown up, you might have a chance to play around again in a different way. And, 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 and there's this phrase that someone taught me that great men don't always make great fathers. And that was one of the best things that sat with me is that you don't have to be amazing you can just be a good father. And I think that's what I've been focusing on for the last That's a powerful years. statement, isn't it? I think so. It's hard to be a good father, isn't it? It's hard. It is. It's really difficult. I don't think anybody gives you any training. You just get born with this baby that comes out and you're like, fuck, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God. And it's a difficult process. Like, I, I, I agree. I, I can relate to a lot of what you said. I think it's a mm -hmm. really hard thing being a good father. And we mm -hmm. fail, like, I think. And Hopefully. this, like, 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 I don't think there's anything wrong in failing. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes it's really hard, isn't it? And, mm -hmm. and I think photography as a career is lonely, right? It's, it's yeah. A, yeah. a really, 
solitude, like solitudinal. So that's not a word, is solitary, it? Solitary. Yeah. Solitary. That's what I was looking yeah. for. Solitary pursuit, and you spend a lot of time thinking, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, and looking, and observing, and sometimes you miss what's in front of you. If you know, in yeah, terms yeah. of your family, Absolutely. right? And I've, you know, I've seen a few casualties of that process, and it's like I, I understand why they probably um, it's probably happened, but. Uh, and, uh, you know, I understand the tensions as well, because what happens is you go from being an ambitious young man into a man responsible for a, for a wider group of people and individuals who need dif- who need your attention. And the whole thing about photography is that it's all about attention focused elsewhere, isn't it? You have to, because otherwise you can't be a photographer. You can't go out into the world and be uh, inattentive. You have to <laughs> attend to what, what it is that your subject is. So perhaps the other bit of advice I'd say, Dan, is, is to try and compartmentalise it a bit more, be a bit more sort of, okay, I'm going to go off on my fishing trip or hunting trip or whatever and compartmentalise that. And then, keep everything separate. Yeah. And I, I, had, I read something recently that Martin Parr said. He said, I never take a camera out with me on a country walk with a dog. Why would I? I'm busy enjoying the countryside and my dog, you know, and I just thought <laughs> that was great. It's like he's he's able to sort of separate uh, out but somehow there's this guilt as a photographer that if you're not always highly charged and ready to go and it's like (laughs) super observant and like on it right in the zone (laughs) of course i think i think is is, is that kind of like i mean do do you take a camera everywhere you go like i I, I, no no, me neither I, i used to but yeah you're right maybe as you get older you realize that that you need to you need to be in a certain mental space to be able to operate efficiently, right? And if you're not in that space, it's, it's just useless. I, I took my youngest out. We went up to uh, Northumberland a few weeks ago, and I was very careful to make sure that the photography didn't interfere with the, the family activities. But I, I said to him, look, I'm going to go into this particular town this morning because I want to take some photographs and then we're going to go to this other beach or whatever and I'll put my camera away. And he said, oh, I'm quite interested to, to come and see what what it is that, that you find interesting. So I talked him through the process of making a photograph, which was actually absolutely fascinating, not just for, for me, but he said at the end of it, he said, oh, that kind of makes sense. You know, <laughs> I have to look, I've got, I'm trying to make sense of the world but I'm also trying to control it in this um, viewfinder, right? Because um, there's there's some photographers that are very fluid with their shooting, and I think they're amazing, you know. I think the breakthrough book in British photography was Nick Watplington's Living Room, which was this complete chaos with the photographer immersed right in the centre of the of the family, you know. he was He was right in the middle of it. You couldn't have got those pictures just by sort of being a street photographer what you had to be immersed in it and he actually includes himself in the pictures in the book which is fascinating but there was a sort of rawness and a chaos to it and a, a kind of non-cartier bresson you know there, there was something that was happening there and then obviously um you know got raised a laugh was the next version of that where it was actually billingham's family that he was documenting and again that was a major sh- shift in British photography, I think. And the guy was carrying that around in a carrier bag. I think it was Julian Germain who 
got it out of the carrier bag and I think got it in front of Michael Collins, the Telegraph at the time. But anyway, they put a book together that became Razor Laugh and it's like, so there are the people, the photographers who are able to embrace that chaos and go with it and make sense of their world and the world in that way. And there are other photographers, you know, who like to make things ordered. And I've noticed uh, just on my brief, but very, very addictive spell on Instagram because once you get in, you're you're <laughs> locked in. It's like, oh my god! Um, <laughs> they know they know how to hook you, don't they? Oh my god! I mean, I saw you had a, a a piece about the Instagram problem, so we won't go over that again. But we all know what it is. It's like it's a it's. A, but there are the, what's happened. I've noticed is that everyone's trying to fine tune the world to these moments. And there's this kind of echo chamber of, of, of photography going on out there in, in, especially in street photography, where everything has to be put either a joke or perfectly aligned or all, all the elements have to be together. And of course, one photographer is going to get that at some point. And doesn't it become boring though, right? Like, yeah, after a while, right? I, I'm, I'm guilty of it. If you scroll through no. my Instagram, no, like, it's fine. That, that's kind of what it looks like. But <laughs> no, in, interesting. But, like, but you know, you know, the, I was going to, sorry, Dan, sorry, I didn't mean to speak over you. But I was just going to say that maybe you have to get to the boring to move past it, if you know right. what I mean. Like, that's exactly like, what I was about to say. So, Paul has seen what my real photography looks like. Mm-hmm. And it's, it doesn't look like that. <laughs> okay, so there's these two types of photography. Well, well, I mean, I don't think it looks like that. I, I'm told by others that they can see the connection between the two, mm. but it doesn't. It, like Normally, my, my shots are a lot more documentary, pretty mm. much exclusively in black and white. Yeah. Like, But to be honest with you, I started shooting like that on streets before I even knew that people were still doing it. Yes. I, did, I did photography as an A-level at school. Yeah, so yeah, I was yeah. maybe 16 mm-hmm. and we were given a copy of the decisive moment. Oh yeah. And yeah. it was like, right, go out in town, do this. This is your homework. Don't you know, here's, 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 a role, yeah, here's a roll of HP five. Go, go, go do that. Don't do that. And, and obviously what you take is like blurry pictures of bite racks and mm-hmm. some, some rubbish photos. <laughs> <laughs> but like, We've all done it. I, I realized that when I got my first, in, in later life, we bought a digital camera. I think mm-hmm. um, my nephew was born and we decided that we wanted to start documenting some of these moments. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized that when I was going out on holiday, I wasn't taking the, the touristy pictures. I was taking the pictures of the, I don't know, whatever it is, you know, we're in Barcelona. Your, and I'm, your white Nike socks. Yeah, (laughs) wherever it is. And like, I think those, if you scroll down on my Instagram, you'll probably see some of that stuff, but Mm. like the black and white stuff at the bottom. But back then when I took those, I didn't realize that people were still doing stuff. And then I discovered Instagram and I was like, oh wait, like this is a thing and people are still doing it. And I think I got sucked into the echo chamber and I was like, if I just polish this stuff up a little bit more and then like, that's what I did. And, And now I'm at that point where, I've realized, and I don't know why it took me a few years to realize, but mm-hmm. I don't give a shit about photography. I actually like people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and now I'm getting to the point where I want to go and do, like you're talking about these amazing stories and you went to do mm. this thing. And, mm. and that to me sounds really appealing. Not mm. for the photography. Like that's a no. byproduct of you living your life. It is. And I think that, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, which is that um, the reason you would be bothered to go out and do a piece of work about something is because you're fundamentally interested in the people that you'll meet or or you don't have to engage with them all the time. This is a bit of a myth of, 
you know, that you have to become right. friends with everyone or, you know, embed yourself. No, but you, 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 you have to be open to the thing about the subject that you're absolutely fascinated by. So I grew up in the 1970s. I was a child, I was 10 years old in 1975. So the Second World War was only 30 years before. Do you know what I mean? So all of the people that I was surrounded by were either born in the middle of the war, like my parents, or had lived through it. And so the 70s Britain was obsessed with was was still obsessed with the war. The TV was full of war films. You know, everything was so retro and backward looking. Um, and as the eighties came along, um, th- th- this is my whole thing that there's, there was this kind of anxiety about letting that go. That people were kind of clinging onto it. This kind of, you know, it's come back to bite us big time, <laughs> you know, with, with, with Brexit and everything. Cause it's, Something there's something both comfortable and reassuring about it, but also deeply unsettling and unpleasant about it. You know, because the reality of seventies Britain is it was it was it was class ridden, it was racist, it was it wasn't this kind of golden era that everybody sort of thinks is oh yeah, let's get back to the old days. It's like I, even as a kid, I remember it wasn't. It wasn't that great. So then when I became a photographer, it's like, I'm, I'm wondering if I can, um, Jerry Johansson or Gary Johansson, the f- Swedish photographer, he calls it the patina or patina. I'm not quite sure how he pronounced the word of, he, he, he's not interested in decaying retro. So, so much as, you know, but he's interested in this kind of patina of, 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 not it's not even nostalgia it's like a it's like a rust or something that yeah. sits on now there's lots of people sort of pursuing retro um kind of interiors at the moment as they're slowly being ripped out and there are fewer and fewer of them around and i think some of the appeal for some of the early posts on instagram i had was i couldn't understand why so many people like to post for the interior of a, a cafe in bradford in the 90s and it's like because it felt nostalgic and it's like, so there was this kind of, hmm. but none of the work that I was doing at the time was particularly nostalgic. It was just about trying to understand that kind of uh, strange transition that was kind of going on in front of me. That's the only way I can describe it of, of not only in myself growing up from being a kid to an adult, but in, in, in England really. And, you know, I think I managed to capture it, but I couldn't do it now. I could not. I've, I've gone out and had a look, you know, with my camera, and I found myself taking pictures of retro things, and I'm slapping myself on the hand going, <laughs> will you stop doing that? Because Everything's going to be retro in fair years, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, it's, but it isn't. It isn't because, because of the profusion of photography, somehow – it almost like will feel like it, it isn't. I can't quite describe it, but there's, it's, it's, it's so much information about it that somehow that will sort of linger and sit around for quite a long time. And maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. So what I've suddenly started to look at and be interested in is the amazing transformation of London into this kind of futuristic 
mega megalopsis megalopsis i don't know you know huge and that was due to the the lifting of the planning restrictions by mayor boris johnson he just allowed this kind of monstrosities to be built in nine elms and and i got some assignments on with some building companies working on the, you know working on these sites and it's like oh my god look what's happening to to i'm not saying it should all be cutesy and nostalgic but my god this is this is this is worse and it's full of people buying them as investments and not living in them it's a disgrace actually so it's like that's kind of visually interesting so i've kind of started to explore that a little bit just sort of tentatively um but i would certainly not shoot that in the same way as i shot this book i would use digital cameras because you know just 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 was he a was you a punk in the in the sentence? Yeah, yeah, I sensed them. it. Yeah, <laughs> I was a, I was an angry little boy. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> um, well, we can smell our own. I think that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, photography and punk and skateboarding and and yeah, all these kind of it's all linked, isn't it? We're all sort of sitting on the outside looking in and kind of questioning everything a little bit, you know, well, not too much, but actually questioning things um, in a quite a healthy man- manner. Um, but, yeah, um, so I'm not quite sure where anything's going to go, but what I am going to do is I'm going to make a little film. I'm going to go around Britain just and choose six places from the book and go and visit them and and talk mm. to some people because the, the steelworks in Redcar are being demolished this year. So, is that caravan. the one where there's a photograph of caravans? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an amazing photograph. That's coming down this year. You see, so I've got so I've got some connect some a connection with a guy who is from Red Car. Who was, you know, that's a good thing about Instagram is you meet you guys and interesting people and you talk to them. And he said they're pulling it down this year. So I said oh, I'm going to have to go and yeah go back and around that and 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 go and visit some places and so i might go to great yarmouth red car i might go to cornwall and maybe one other place and just just explore you know where we are now but do it as a little sort of video piece maybe like a 10 minute piece and and (laughs) hang that book on it or something i don't know do you have a do you have a desert island photo book like you could take one one book to a desert island. What would it be? Yeah, I think it was recently. Um, yeah, it would be um, Tony Ray Jones. It would be his book. Yeah, that would be the uh, that. Not because my work looks like his, but because he died age thirty of of um, leukemia, and so he worked incredibly hard for a very short period of time. And you can tell. Do you know what I mean? There's this obsession about it. And uh, and and that's what most appeal. He had these like shoot lists where he was going to go and how he should take better photos. And I remember writing all this down myself. Like, how how can I make this better? You know. Um, and so that that would be very. I can't. I, I don't imagine he was a very pleasant guy to be around because he's probably <laughs> obsessive, compulsive, just like a lot of us. But there's something about that book that. Um, it, it it sets the whole, you know, Martin Parr obviously cites Tony Ray Jones as a key influence, but Parr took what he did and put his own thing on it. And, and um, 
yeah, I think it's the focus on on his own country as well, you know. Um, but you know, the second one would be Lars Tumbjörn's A Country Beside Itself, which, yeah, which is, again is totally focused on his own homeland. He's got par kind of qualities in terms of the way he uses Flash, but he's he's done his his pictures are much more chaotic, much more sort of. There's lots of Friedlander going on in there as well. Do you know what I mean? It's the, and it's like that. That's a a signature book. I think so. It would be, a, yeah. But I think Ray Jones would win it at the end of the day. Okay, Do you know if Ryan. Jones realised his days, uh, his days were numbered? No, when, no, he, no idea. he was he he was diagnosed and was dead within a month. So, I, no. I just, I, I'm just, I'm now pondering. Like, if somebody said to you, like, I mean, let's take the morbidity out of it, right? Mm. Let's say someone said to you, right, you've got one year, and then I'm taking all your cameras. Yeah. No more video, no more still. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you've got a year. Yeah. Let's just assume you've got a budget. Whatever yeah. the right, just what do you do? What do you do for a year? Uh, oh my god! Um, <laughs> well, I probably I probably sit, you know, twiddling my thumbs for eleven months. Of it <laughs> Don't do it for a month. Go crazy, yeah. Well, you're going to know, right? You're going to know deep down that every second you're like not making a decision is a second you're not doing the thing. Well, so, I guess you're, it, it will focus you yeah. pretty rapidly. Well, I would have thought absolutely. So, I'm going to tell. So, here's the difficult bit that we've got to is that my father had uh, multiple sclerosis all through my childhood and I slowly watched him fade away in front of me uh, year after year after year. So by the time I was a teenager, he couldn't walk. And by the time I was in my mid-twenties, he couldn't speak or feed himself. And then he died when I was in my mid-twenties. So I was convinced that that was going to happen to me. And so therefore... I better get a scoot on, you know, and get, mm. get working. Uh, and uh, so the clock was ticking. So I was convinced that by the time I was 30, I would have some kind of degenerative disease. I don't, and I didn't. And uh, <laughs> you, uh, sound, but, you sound like my wife, sorry to say. She thinks, <laughs> she's, gonna, she thinks she's dying all the time. Yeah, we are. <laughs> tell her. Tell we, her are, we, we are, are. we are, we are. Absolutely. Just not as fast as she thinks. <laughs> <laughs> so it's this kind of um, the, the kind of reminder of the mortality uh, was sitting there all through my early years, and so the furious ambition and drive came from that. And the problem was that when I um, got to a point where things had to sort of even out and steady out, um, it, it kept it kept burning away. And it's like now it doesn't because. I'm, my dad, my dad died when he was 52 and I'm 56 now. So it's like, you know, we're past that. You're good. You're good. Yeah, I'm all right. But it was <laughs> the, it was the degeneration of him. That was the difficult thing. He wasn't, he, he didn't yeah, die quickly. He died in front of me very, very slowly. Did you take and, photos of your dad? Hmm? Did you yeah, take photos of your dad? I didn't know. It was too uncomfortable. The whole thing was just so uncomfortable. And, uh, uh, but he grew up in this kind of world that I've sort of depicted in the book, and there's there's something of 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 that sort of po- you know there's something going on here, and and I'm, the melancholy that that comes through in some of the pictures is to is me processing his. It would have all been quite fresh at that time, right? Yeah, I was out there shooting on the seaside towns because he lived in a seaside town. We grew up in one, wow. and it's like you know, there's nothing better to make you feel more 
godforsakenly morbid than than being in Skegness on a misty morning and no one's around in winter and it's like but there's this strange sort of sadomasochistic joy in it as well it's it's like (laughs) Sasha Wolf you know she I think she does a podcast for Aperture and she said that um there's a part of you in your photographs from the very first photographs that you've been taking Mm. that that's that's an, an imprint, and you've always taken that type of picture. And if you if you if you look through your work closely enough, that like that message that is in your work, mm. I think there's something true in that. Where it just takes maybe somebody else to see it. I don't I know. Think what you think. You're absolutely right. And what's so weird is that Tom chose this picture for the book of a, a baby in a pram uh, with this woman. It's the opening shot. It's a very retro pram. I went to my mum's house. Uh, to sort of help her sort some things out the other week. And I found a photo album called Memory Lane. And I opened <laughs> the first page and there's a picture of me in a similar pram kind of <laughs> staring at the camera. And it's like, ooh, this is kind of weird. You know, what's going on here? And it's like, well, because there's this residual unconscious drivers that you 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 not you don't even know they're ruling you, you know. But they okay. are. They can rule you in a healthy way. They can rule you in an unhealthy way. But one of the best ways to get this stuff out and expressed is through creativity, which is either music, photography, writing, whatever it is. But it's got to come out. Do you, think, do you think photography has helped you? Like, do you think uh, yeah. get through well, life? Yeah, definitely. It's... Um, it got me off my ass to go out there and to look at things and do interesting things and new things. I think, uh, I think my, it got in the way a lot, you know, if I was, uh, you know, I went to Paris with my wife uh, for her birthday and I was taking pictures and she said, what, what the hell are you doing? You know, we're on a <laughs> date, you know, it's like, what are you doing? And I, I suddenly realized that this was totally unacceptable for me to be fascinated by something else when I'm with a woman that I've been with for 35 years on a weekend in Paris. It's like, <laughs> so I put my cameras away, but it felt really uncomfortable because <laughs> there's this kind of asperger sort of need to kind of, uh, some people call it, I don't know, everyone's different. So, but uh, I'm very anxious. So, I go. I find photography very, very soothing. It gives me something to do. It gives me focus. It gives me a sense of purpose, a journey from A to B, you know. But the, the problem is what you find fascinating. So the thing by shooting, going back to shoot film, was really, really difficult. A, because I don't necessarily see there's that many benefits in shooting film, really, given the technology that cameras have, have achieved now. Uh, but it was to do with the discipline. It was every time I pushed the shutter, it cost me £1.20. So I I actually was really considering whether this was worthy of a picture, you know, and that, and, and whereas with digital, I'll, I'll decide that later. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you can go out and sketch and, you know, street photography is great with digital technology because, you know, you have to shoot and fast and furious and whatever. But, there was something that was really uh, kind of cathartic and methodical about going back to the old way of working, you know, just the simple camera with a simple, you know, I've, I bought 300 rolls of film before the film suddenly went through the roof. And I think once I'm shot, once I've shot all that, I don't oof, know. Oof. Yeah, that's just, I, I worked out if you've got, 
you know, there's t- there's there's two hundred good pictures in there in that three hundred rolls of film. Do you know what I mean? So if I can't get another two hundred decent pictures, and those two hundred pictures could last me for the next ten years, you know what I mean? So I, I want to ask you one more question that you hit right at the very beginning, and you said that your daughter. Yes. said, oh, dad, come on, come on to Instagram. Mm-hmm. Like, had she loved your work as, as a child growing up or was, like, was it a She's connection? very creative. Was- we've shared a bond around creativity uh, and we've always encouraged uh, uh, our children to be exactly who they are, not a reflection of us. So my eldest son's not interested in, you know, he, he, he we, I went to the Himalayas with him when he was 16. He didn't take a camera, he didn't take a single picture. He said, why would I? I'm here to experience it. I'll experience it. I'll remember it. And that's done. And it's, that's his way of interacting with the world. Um, my youngest son's really into cooking. My daughter's really in, was always interested in, um, you know, visual creativity. So, yeah, there's a shared interest. But uh, I think it's only because she's now a mature young woman that she's actually able to say, you know, so it was a gift from her, definitely. And, and, and isn't it an amazing gift that you've been able to give oh, back? Like, the only thing yeah, like, oh my God, yeah. I mean, I mean, It must be really proud, a really proud feeling, because maybe, did you ever think you were going to make a book like no, before? No. no. Nope, no. I mean, let's be honest, doing offset litho print books, even in, is expensive, you know, and uh, I can't thank, you know, Matt Stewart at Plague Press enough for, for putting his you know, belief in this book, Dodd Miller and Christabel Hara, those are his first three books. That's a major investment. But he he said, look, I believe in it. And it's like, well, because most of the times now you either have to self-publish, which is great, you know, there's lots of digital routes that you can go down, zines and small runs, and that's fantastic. But for this, it was like, this is real old school. And I said, well, I'd like a dust jacket, if that's all right as well, like really old school. No books have dust jackets anymore. And he said, yeah, let's do a dust jacket. And then we came up with the idea of the text on the front being uh, kind of like embedded. Because what we wanted was a, pic- a photo book with only a photo on the cover and no text. But we did get the text in, but it's invisible. And you have to t- twist the book to see the the embossing of the title on it. Is, oh, that's <laughs> It's wow. nice, yeah. Uh, so the, the the problem is, you know, my wife said, "This is it now, isn't it? There'll be no more books. Will there? There'll be the, it will be gardening and you know walks." But the problem also, I'll be honest, is that um, because I was suppressing my love of working as a photographer, I just started buying other photographers' work obsessively. So, you know, books were coming through the door, you know, you know, the packages were, you know, just piling up on the doorstep, which caused lots of uh, sort of arguments as well, understandably, because it became obsessive because the internet allowed you to, to find anything anywhere, you know, in the world and have it delivered to your oh, door. Particularly because of lockdown as well. Oh, my God. I just God. got nothing else going on. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But I've, I've got no more space anymore. And so what I'm doing now is I'm essentially uh, talking with a, a an art book uh, specialist and uh, we're going to sell the whole lot. No. 
Yeah, as one. Can I? Can yeah. I just? I was going to say something before you. You sh- the way you talk about photo books. Mm. That's what you got. You make video. Come on, mm. come and do Martin Salter talking through your favorite photo books. I would oh. love. I would love to hear that, Martin. Well, really would. Well, th- maybe before they go. I'll yes, please, something. please. Yeah, I will do that. I've got some. Fa- yeah, but they they're just essentially they're a noose around my neck now. They're like a burden, and it's like I know all the pictures. I know everything. I know the work. I know the photographers. And now it would be nice to actually find somewhere they, where they could exist in the public domain so mm. lots of people could access them. So I'm not quite sure how that would work. But, they, you know, it's nowhere near as big as uh, Martin's collection of 10,000 wow. books. Yeah, you know, I've got maybe a couple of thousand, something like that. That's a lot. It's too many. But, you know, there was a, a recent story of Manfred Heiting, who had one of the most amazing photo book collections in the world, uh, he's a friend of Martin's and he's done a lot of these history of photo books and um, he sold his collection to the museum in Texas and they'd shipped sort of 5,000 of the books to the museum but the, the, his whole library went up in flames in the matter no. of five three years oh, ago my word. a whole lot just went so I thought okay well what would you do if that was what would you do? You'd you'd go, oh well, that's absolutely terrible. But you, he started collecting them again. It's, he's in his seventies. It's like, come on, surely not. Surely it's a compulsion, though. You you well, said it course. earlier. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? So I'll tell you a little a little story. Um, you know, and we've let's let's get it out there. Is that um, I collected a library around myself. It surrounds me. It's all around me in this room. And my dad used to take me to the library when I was a little boy every Saturday morning, just me and him in the library together looking at books, picture books. And I was about five, four or five or whatever. And so one of the theories about this is this is an emotional requirement of me. I, I have to have books around me to feel um, to feel calm and to feel safe. Uh, and I've explored this uh, with, with some people and, and it's a it's perfectly valid, but you can see why it would become obsessive if you're in a state of anxiety, like lockdown, or or you know life is tricky when you're raising a family. I started to link photo book purchases with moments of heightened anxiety. I would be on the internet looking for, you know, oh, it'd be okay. far healthier to go out and be a photographer or go for a run or or <laughs> or do something else, but to be to be hunting. There's another theory that it's an it's a, a skewed hunter gatherer instinct that we have that you know we like to have. I'm not convinced about that one. I think uh, I think there's something that makes me feel very comfortable about having these books by people I you know really admire around me, and uh, I don't know whether it's fucked up or whatever, but um, but I'd quite like to sort of relinquish it now and say, look, you. you you don't need to do that anymore. You can go and make work and you can, you, you've kind of done your time. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it feels like research, right? Yeah, it's research. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the funny thing is, it's not research because ultimately the pictures that, uh, that I took that were in this book were taken, most of them were taken 25, 20 years ago. Is it all from I, a tight, I, I don't have the book yet. No, it's fine. Um, full, full disclosure for anybody listening we're recording this, I think, literally the day after it has been released. Yeah, right? yeah, it's only just come out, yeah. 
So I haven't got my grubby mitts on it yet, so I don't I don't know enough about it. Is it all within a fairly short period of yeah, time? Yeah, it's 95 to 2004. So uh, it's what I call the golden period, um, which a lot of photographers have. And it's, uh, I describe it as the time when you have, I think you have the most, um, you most, you've got the most time, the most energy and the least amount of money. And it's a sort of strange <laughs> one, isn't it? Because it's like, that should be the time when you're, you know, you think that money is going to make you more prolific. It's quite the opposite, actually. It's when you're hungry for 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 creativity. You don't need the money, honestly. It's 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 just about um, somehow it's not linked. So there's this sort of golden period of between I was in 1995. I was 30. So between the ages of 30 and 40 was prolific. You know. Um, and then, as I say, you know, by the time I was 40, I had many other responsibilities and, and the career path just suddenly hit a brick wall and it's like, okay, I need to do something else. And so, you know, and when I say prolific, I don't mean shooting thousands of rolls of film because we couldn't afford it even then. I mean, film was expensive. But you were out, you were I was pounding out. the streets. Yeah, I was working, I was sh- shooting, I was just, you know, planning, going, getting assignments, just, you know, just essentially, you know, always looking for that picture that was the picture that I was my picture rather than somebody else's picture, you know, either for an assignment or something. So um, the thing that was, you know, this is the voice, you know, finding your voice is is really quite difficult as a photographer. Um, And I think... Maybe that's what I was struggling to do, and the, the the thing is that that voice was then appropriated to sell mobile phones. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it takes. Do you know what it does though? When you do that advertising work, I think it just takes your soul out of it. it like you, it, you lose all, all like you meet some people. Like the world, the advertising world is full of just. You know, quite. I don't know. I, I'm being an most carefully. Not arsehole, but there is a few arseholes. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a weird world. It's like it's these superinflated egos and and the the people that think that they have what's the word I'm going to use? Like they know better than you, but yet, like I've stood on a few jobs when there's been creative directors behind me tutting. You know, yeah, <laughs> <like>. <laughs> horrible. It's horrible, <laughs> and you do question what the. F- why am I here? Like, I, I pinched myself a few times thinking, is this real? It, it, it didn't feel real. Mm. I don't know. It felt like I was in some sort of alternate reality. And it, and it, 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 it and it was like, what am I doing? I, I, this is weird. How did I end up here in this studio with these cats? Yeah. How did this happen? Yeah. You know, I, I did this job and they came up to me and we, they said, we bought all the advertising space. We spent two million quid on it. Don't fuck up. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for that. Don't fuck up. Well, that sounds like a you problem. I didn't spend too many equipment. <laughs> it's terrible. And, uh, I, you know, I'll be real. Uh, you know, in full disclosure here, what happened was I was on this shoot, uh, which was for a bank, and they had a full-size version of the human person, and then they had a little mini version of him, created digitally okay so it was quite a complex shoot to get right because we didn't have digital files to work with so we couldn't work out in the computer 
because there weren't, you know, it wasn't. I, I'm not going to say it, but I think I know what that is. I, I think yeah. I remember the campaign. Yeah, my God, me and my money, it was for, for, for <laughs> Abbey National. Anyway, there was, a, there was a, a shot that they'd drawn and it was, a, it was a Christmas shot and he was holding a turkey and in the shot, they spent £600 on a food stylist to, to cook the turkey, which I found obscene. <laughs> in that's that's and, an expensive and, turkey. And then they asked, they, they couldn't, it, we couldn't make it work because the drawing didn't fit with reality. So I said, why don't we get the mini character to hold the turkey above his head? <laughs> this little sort of conf lab in the corner. And then someone came over and they said, oh, health and safety. <laughs> <laughs> what the fictional mini oh character? Oh like the way, wait, wait, the, the digital character yeah. Yeah. that doesn't exist in real life yeah. can't hold okay. the turkey yeah. above his head because <laughs> people will be doing this with turkeys. So some homes. people could could handle that because, uh, and I think now at fifty six, with life behind me in some ways, and that I, I could I could manage that situation much better. But as a hot headed you know, sort of ex-angry kid. I went into the corner with a very good friend of mine who now is a, is a Hollywood stills, movie stills photographer, and he was assisting me on that job. And I just said to him, very quietly under my breath in the corner, I said, for fuck's sake. <laughs> and that was enough to get me sacked. That was enough to lose all representation. Do we do we honestly think there are advertising photographers who like the job? Uh, I, I've met a few. I've met have you? Have you? Okay. I think yeah. it depends what the gig is, right? It depends on the gig. Depends on the temperament of the photographer. I enter. Depends on so many things. But I kind of um, I realised that most jobs that I'd left, except network which i absolutely loved working at network and the people there were wonderful but i i needed to go off and be a photographer but m when i looked at my career history the words for fuck's sake muttered on yeah, yeah they just they followed you around <laughs> like a dark cloud <laughs> <laughs> and if there's any advice i can give to emerging photographers um just practice putting yourself in difficult, annoying situations and see see how long you can control your your Rage. desire to, to, to no, because it doesn't even have to manifest manifest itself in in a in an obvious way. It can be just very quietly. <laughs> and, one, and one of one of the things I asked someone to help me with later in life was, I said, I need you to help me be able to control my uh, kind of kind of annoyance so much that no one can see it in my eyes. They literally can't even see it in me. I need it to be gone. I need to not be worried about this stuff at all anymore. And they, they did help me with it. And it was, it was very, it was very therapeutic, but there, there's a certain temperament that I think is required to work in big uh, setups with lots of different... I tell you, I, I already know the trick to this, mine. And what anybody that's interested in, in working out, I, I worked this out. I think I must have been in my late 20s. Good. Right, Good. so it's the trick is this. What you do is you take a second to compose yourself. Yeah. You look the person in the eye and go, Good. And then you just move <laughs> on with the conversation. Can you, 
that's, well, a, I, that's I, I, good. I, I spend a lot, a lot of time working with um, Roman, who's a French photographer. We worked okay. together for like uh, ten years, and the, he's he didn't take no, like he's really French, like he was really yeah. blunt. And yeah, there's yeah. times when he's, I was he's with got the like, passion, hasn't he? Like, the French passion. Yeah, and he's like, no, man, this is shit. I'm not taking this. Let me tell you how we're going to do this. Oh, wow. And then and like he would keep talking and talking for hours, and I'd eventually have to punch him in the leg to shut him up. <laughs> but like he'd get into a conversation with the client, and he'd be just going at them and going. You could see the client was glazing over. Yeah. <laughs> well, he sounds he, he he it can go either way, can't it? They can either see that as apparently in France that is the way it's done. I mean, maybe I should yeah. be working in France, but as you know, it's it's like all things mature. It, it was a question of maturity. I I I, really, I don't think I was. I don't think I had a mature temperament at that time. I think I was. I think I was still stuck in a sort of teenage mindset even in my early 40s and it's like it wasn't it wasn't appropriate but now it's like what's wonderful about the moment now that I'm in is that I have no desire to build a career at all there's no interest in and maybe because maybe because there's no pressure to do it but it, because it's happening naturally that must be yeah. like yeah. kind of an amazing thing right it's it's, it's great uh, you know, if the book sells, great. If the book doesn't sell, then it's going to sell, Martin. But, uh, but, but photo book. Let's be re- realistic about photo books. They take a long time to sell. You know, so it's 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 not an easy sell. So I'm not under any desire for it to sort of sell out quickly or whatever. Um, but there's this kind of um, there was a moment when it first kicked kicked off, whereas I, I was completely taken back to being 25 again. And it's like suddenly it all, it just, oh, fuck. Oh, You're oh, in a rush. It's like, yeah, I could do this, I could do this. And then it's like, no, just take it, take it down a peg, take it down and think about this and just just go with whatever happens and see what happens. And and, uh, and if it doesn't happen, it doesn't matter. And if it does happen, it's great. And and, and, and I think that philo- philosophical outlook is is kind of yes. almost liberating, isn't it? It, isn't it? It, it, it frees you from from over. I wish I could be that free. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could be all the time. I'm being honest that I'm not all the time like that. I, I get very worked up about very small things that you know I, that worry me um, still, and I think I always will. But I I have found that if I go out with my camera and just wander around i feel really calm and content mm-hmm. it, and isn't isn't that probably that's the best thing isn't it isn't that yeah. the most that's kind, it's kind of addictive as well isn't it, 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 it it's because you know you can get it in that space and and i suppose like we talked earlier it, it becomes a bit selfish at times it becomes like you know i need to get to my space this <laughs> mental <laughs> space where i feel safe and I don't know, but you don't think about anything else, right? You just focus yeah. on what's coming, and it's like this flow of information, and you just. What's been interesting for me is that I haven't been able to take a portrait of anybody in the last six months. I haven't actually. I had no problem years back of approaching people and asking, and a lot of it's to do with um, agency, the agency of the person now, because we live in a, a world that's very different now, and. Um, you know, some people on Instagram have got in touch where they've, you know, uh, the weirdest thing, a, a cover of a magazine was this young girl at the Oxford book, uh, May Ball. It was for the Bath series, and she's completely 
you know, having a great time, leaning forward, trying to get served. And I just typed, I wonder where this girl is now. And literally 30 minutes later, I got a message saying she's here because her sister-in-law happened to be following the Instagram feed. She got in touch with her, uh, you know, and within 30 minutes, uh, and I've said, I always wondered what, what you felt about being on the cover of the magazine looking half cut, you know. And she said, oh, no, it's fine because it reminded me of younger times and, you know, it's absolutely fine. I'm going I'm to send her a print uh, of, of the picture. But we are in a different world now. It's like, you, you it's like, oh. Yeah, that could get her sacked nowadays. Yeah. Well, yeah, but fortunately, it's 20, 22 years ago. She's in her 40s now, but it's like. But do you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. But I'm saying, like, exactly, like you yes. said, we're in a different world. We are. If, if you did that today, I think. Yeah, you'd have to be very careful. And and, and it's made me very nervous. And it's like, so what I've decided is that maybe what you need to do is work in a slightly different way when it comes to those kind of things. Or what I am going to do is carry around a little um, box of prints with me and say, this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. And would you like to be included? Uh, And obviously not going to get into model releases and that kind of stuff because that's a whole different kettle of fish. But... um, it makes it too yeah. official, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think if I, I think photographers need to be able to explain their intentions more clearly now. I don't think they have to stop taking pictures, you know, where, wherever they wherever it's legal to do so. But I do think that I I, I really struggle with representing anybody in a in a way that isn't a way that I would like to be represented now. I really struggle with that. How I, I think that's really important, though, isn't it? Like, and I think, I think, I think maybe I don't say we all get there, but I think I've got. I, I've shot street photography for about ten years, mm-hmm. and I, I read an article on the ethics. I think by Joel Kohlberg, uh-huh. and and it just really made me stop and think about what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think. Yes, we can take as many candid pictures as we want, and there's nothing wrong with it. I don't. I don't. No, no. But but your personal ethics and how you feel about representing somebody, um, I think, evolves slowly over time. And then you get to a point when you go, fuck, did I shoot those pictures mm. 15 years ago? I, I feel a bit uncomfortable about some of the stuff I've shot, mm. you know. Mm. And I, I, I wouldn't shoot it now, but I think I think street, street photography is a great doorway into photography. And once you step through that door, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like there's, like... I, how do I? It's just all like a tsunami of information coming at you, and you're you're taking in as much of you know the different mm-hmm. photographers that you're viewing and you're looking at, and mm-hmm. and eventually you're like, actually, why am I shooting these pictures? What do they mean? They don't mean anything. Uh, they didn't mean anything to me. And and, and I looked at that back at them, and I thought, oh, I've just spent ten years of my life wandering the streets, <laughs> and they they felt like. Like if you were going to speak to people and they said, oh, what's Paul like? I'm quite generous. I'm quite kind. Yeah. I'm quite open. And that, my photos weren't reflecting that. Like no. I don't think, and maybe Dan will disagree with you, but me, sorry. But I think you have to get, like it's almost you have to push yourself through this horrible sort of wall of learning and understanding. And then, then you're like, okay, I get it. Maybe I get it. I should have been shooting this way all along. And mm. I, I, I shot a project for the last two years, which just follows the Wandle River from Croydon mm-hmm. to Wandsworth. And 
one of the things that struck me is when I stopped to speak to people and have a conversation with them, mm. how willing they were to have that conversation. And yeah. they were like, they wanted to, they were like, really, these last two years, they were really, especially through lockdown, people were more willing to talk, I think, because mm -hmm. maybe we'd been locked up and we weren't like having daily conversations. We were all on Zoom. And that, it was something about that physical connection in those was really poignant and it made me feel like, oh God, this is what I should have been doing all along, but I had to go through that street shit. I, not, not I don't shit, know where you say that, but I worry that we all overthink this. We like, do. I, we I, do. I, I, I worry do. that like everybody overanalyzes their own work and mm. on some Facebook groups, I've noticed that people overanalyze other people's work and there's, yeah. there's this weird conversation that I keep seeing over and over again. I was like, what was your intention behind this photo? Mm. So does it need a fucking intention like i liked the thing i'm proud of the photo well, I like, I, like, it doesn't matter like i just thomas, thomas roma is a friend of gary winogrand's and so he, i think he said something like um you know someone started asking him questions about what winogrand meant and you know winogrand was always very evasive about you know the meanings of anything he was very totally uncommitted to the idea of explaining his pictures but this guy said, Thomas Roman said, look, he took the picture now, and now you want him to explain it. And I thought that was, that yeah. was, that was it. You know, he, he's a photographer. Okay. He's a photographer. He's taking, he's making a picture and then you can do what you wish with your, your projections onto that picture. That's what makes that's it. That's the magical thing about it. Isn't that what makes it interesting? Yeah, that's the right. best thing, right? That is, that, that's the thing about photography is that I'm not going to explain who this person was, yeah, yeah, yeah. doing, where they were, what time, what I was eating, how I felt at the time. You know, and I, I reached out to a, a, a photographer at the beginning of the Instagram um, process and he said, take all of that stuff off your caption just put the caption on and the date where it was and the date and let everyone else decide the rest of it and that was the that was a defining moment because it's like yeah you're right because what i'm doing is i'm ruining he said you're ruining the experience yeah yeah, yeah. for the viewer i think um, sometimes I, I could go back and forth on this like, i think sometimes it's nice to talk a little bit about it i've I've done this. I've like, but it mm. tends to not be about the photo specifically no. or like what it made me feel or what it represents. It's just yeah. like, here's what I'm thinking at this exact moment. And mm. here's a photo that I've paired with it. Like it's yeah. almost like two separate things. And that's, yeah. I mean, you can talk about your emotional states generally and where you are in your areas of interest and subject matter and what, right. why you're interested in doing something, but you don't have to explain for a start, you you know, you could take some of your best pictures on a day when you were in a foul mood, you hadn't eaten properly and you'd had a row with your partner or something. And they could be joyous. and Yeah, they could be a wonderful picture. Yeah. Said, what the, you, how you were feeling at the time yeah, yeah. might not be relevant, you know. It's the same as, like, if you listen to, I don't know, like the Beatles or something. Like, we don't mm. know what frame of mind they, that they were in. Like, when, mm. they're, when they're singing about all you need is love. They were jolly. Like, Come on, they were jolly. They were stoned. They, 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 they were off their face on acid. But who knows? <laughs> but like this, it's I don't know. I I feel like people were trying to answer art like there's a legitimate question to be answered. Yeah. And I keep hearing people talk about oh, there's a there's a male gaze. There are interesting questions, but these are internal questions that maybe you might want to write an essay on as mm. somebody observing. Do not expect the artist to tell you because it's mm. that's 
part of the mystery. That's part of the magic. Like, don't... Well, there was, I mean, with the, the book, there was some anxiety that I had about, you know, whether I had, you know, whether there was enough kind of um, coverage of all aspects of the United Kingdom in this book, you know, right. the whole gamut, everything. And I yeah. thought, well, no, there isn't. And I couldn't have done that because I'm only one person working in a particular right. time period for with a certain amount of time. Um and so this isn't an attempt to document Britain fully, you know. It's it's like a folk tale. This book, it's like a story book. It's like a not a Grimm's fairy tale, but it's it's not a document of this is what Britain was like between 1995 and 2004. It's these are some of the people that I met and right. some of the landscape. This is a documentary of mine. It's always life between 95 yeah. and. Yeah, this is what I saw. And whether, you know, I hope you enjoy it. Um, and, um, and I can't really explain any more than that. And uh, so a couple of people have asked me to explain some. But there is one picture I will explain. I've decided that it has to be explained. Is the story behind the ice cream van, which everyone will sort of see as my sort of Instagram kind of ident. It's, it's an ice cream van in um, Snowdonia that parked up in this little sort of car park with a sort of Uncle Sam American face painted on the back. I drove past it. And I drove for 10 minutes and thought, you cannot drive past that and not take a picture. So I, I remember that van from a kid, as a kid. I remember it. I would do Yeah, the re- really? yeah so absolutely. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what happened to it because I drove back and I took one frame. I went into the Negs and I'd taken one frame of this picture right direct on from the back with the mountains in the background. And then I just drove off. Then someone said to me, oh, I've on Instagram, oh, I've done a DVLA check on that ice cream van. It, we weren't out of service shortly after you took that picture in 1999. So then I put a call out on the North Wales Ice Cream Facebook page, and there is one. Yeah, so that's a niche Facebook. There's about <laughs> 20, 20 active people. <laughs> within, get this, within half an hour, this young lad came back to me and said, I know what happened at that van. My uncle chased it off patch. <laughs> in Llandudno or somewhere like that. There was a high-speed ice cream van chase through the, vi- through the uh, villages of North Wales. Oh, that's the photo I want to see. Then the van, ice cream van with the hat, Uncle Sam, did a sharp left down through a tunnel, took the whole hat off the top of, smashed it all to pieces, the fiberglass flying everywhere, you know, and uh, the ice cream van was then a write-off. So that's what happened to the ice cream van. It, it is no more. And it was, it was ice cream wars that led to the demise of the van. And I thought, that's fucking great. That, that, that is that's fucking so great. Good. What a lovely, lovely spot to leave it, boys, I think, yeah, isn't exactly. it? <laughs> what amazing. a lovely, lovely, lovely moment. <laughs> Dan. Let's do some shout-outs. Shout-outs, okay. Mine, have you got a shout-out that you'd like to throw out? Are you still thinking about this? I can hand yeah, over to Paul I mean, if you need um, a minute. There's someone who I've been following on um, Instagram who I really have found very, very interesting in, in as much as that he's so prolific and sort of engaged throughout lockdown on the streets of Bristol. It's a guy called Pit Lad. His, 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 his real name's Lee. And he's just, he's just so prolific and sort of just gets... He's basically a music photographer, I think, um, and during lockdown there was no gigs. So instead, he just went out onto the streets of Bristol and just basically documented the reality for many, many people 
who were living in difficult circumstances, possibly on the streets, um, a lot of them. And uh, he, he seems to come across as an incredibly lovely, kind person. And his pictures are very kind of uh, direct and unsettling. So there's something really interesting going on there. Uh, so I would advise people to have a look at what he's up to. And um, Nice. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, definitely. Wicked. I'm, I look forward to checking it out. Yeah. Paul, have you got a shout yeah. out for us? Yeah, I'm going for an artist this week. He's a friend. I made a video with him maybe five, ten years ago for... Um, a client and I, I was just thinking about like his name is Jaime Gilly and he makes kind of it's really difficult to describe is this the it. stuff with really thick paint and lines graphic lines and abstract shapes he's basically Venezuelan okay, and, maybe um, I'm not thinking of the same person and, and it's just it's just beautiful he basically put some of his work on old classic cars and um, a golf GTI is one of them I think he said and if you look at his work it's just well, he's I actually, mean, what he's drawn a Golf GTI, or he's drawn on a Golf yeah, GTI. Yeah, he's drawn on, he's painted on to a Golf mm-hmm. GTI, and he's done a few other classic cars as well. That's cool. And, uh, and it's just really graphic lines and colours, and it's just beautiful work, really, yeah. Jaime Gilly. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Mm-hmm. That's another one I look forward to checking out. My shout-out this week is um, Carl Bailey. I, I, I've got a shout-out out, because Woo-hoo! if it wasn't for Carl, we wouldn't be talking to Martin right now. Well, thank so you. I, I've... Uh, yeah, Carl Bailey's documentary photographer from Portsmouth. His work is just like really, really, really good. And there was this really heartwarming moment. The first time Carl reached out to us, he was like, listen, you need to talk to my friend Martin. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I, I always do this thing when, when someone comes to me and they're like, this is the person that I think I want to hear you guys talk to. He's on your wavelength whatever where i'm like i I check them out and i'm like there's do you know i mean there's like a i'm trying to think of the right way for it it's just yeah i really really enjoy his work and i can't wait to to get him on because we're we're going to be sorting out at some point soon yeah so yeah carl bailey without him we wouldn't be chatting to martin so um right martin best place to find your book it's uh satanta books Books, uh the uk distributor uh you can get it off their website the packaging is amazing uh they your book will arrive as it left so no dented corners no you know fantastic and um yeah i'm going to be at the bristol photo book festival uh for the whole time uh on the 22nd to the 24th so if anyone's down in that area and wants to pop in and say hello i'll be on the photo book club uh collective table there and also at the plague press and satanta tables so give you know look me up i'll, I'll be there so it's an event that if people love photo books, get yourself to Bristol. Uh, Martin, can I ask a favour? This is yeah. a little like a sneaky favour. We really yeah. want to get Matt on. We, we we really want to get Matt and chat to Matt. Can you well, ask him? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, yeah, yeah. He'd be well up for it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've been after Matt since like day one of this. Really? Podcast. Right. Yeah. Okay. So he, he follows us. This is the heartbreaking thing, Matt. Uh, Matt, <laughs> I know you're listening to us, Matt. Matt, we've been following you for ages. You've been, been following a us. Teenager. We, <laughs> I was actually have, years ago <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I knew I knew of him when he was a skater how weird is that anyway right yes. you can follow Martin your Martin yeah, Salter Martin Studio Martin, on Instagram yeah, that's it. yeah. yep give, give me a follow and uh, I'm, I'm really interested in meeting and talking to uh, photographers um, happy to share any insights or knowledge I've got however useful that may be 
I'll, I'll link everything in the show notes as well. So everything that we've spoken about, I say I'll link. I'm going to secretly ask Paul to do it after this. Week. <laughs> Because I don't know if I'm going to be, it's going to be like a whirlwind of people that we've got to try and link to. Because it's more so holiday than more holiday than Thomas Cook. You Dan. <laughs> I know, right, I know. You can find us on Instagram at Idle Hand Society. We'll catch you in two weeks to have the next conversation. I don't think we've actually got anyone lined up yet. Maybe it'll be Matt. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Lovely to talk to you guys. It's been lovely to talk to you as well. Thank you so much for your time, Martin. I really, really appreciate it. Really lovely speaking to you. Yeah, thank you.